Hi, I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly podcast from the Post and Courier. In 2012, the Supreme Court first upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. There is a caveat, though. The court said it was up to the states to decide if they would expand Medicaid, the state and federal program that provides health coverage to people with low incomes. Most states signed on. South Carolina did not. Ten years in, the state remains one of only 12 that hasn't expanded its Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act. Republican leaders in Columbia have long argued that South Carolina can't afford it. But others argue that there are serious costs to not expanding coverage, too. Today, you'll hear from health editor Lauren Saucer, who's been covering this issue since 2013. We also spoke with Christian Sora, a former Medicaid director for South Carolina, who is now executive vice president of the South Carolina Hospital Association, an organization that publicly supports Medicaid expansion. Now, this is a pretty complicated topic, but we will try our best to break it down today. But if you have any questions for us, reach out. Our email is understandsc at postandcourier.com. All right, here's Lauren. My name is Lauren Saucer, and I'm the health and science editor at the Post and Courier. So the health insurance gap that we're talking about today was really set in motion in South Carolina about 10 years ago. So let's start with that. What happened 10 years ago? Under the ACA, basically, the federal government wanted to give every adult in the country who fell below the federal poverty line a Medicaid card. When the court upheld the ACA in 2012, which will be 10 years ago next summer, it said that states couldn't be compelled to participate in that Medicaid expansion because like the Medicaid program as it has always existed, states have a financial responsibility. So they have to pay for part of it. And because the states were eventually going to have to pay up to 10% of the Medicaid expansion's costs, they could decide whether or not they wanted to participate. South Carolina opted out. What was the reasoning behind that? At the time, is that the long-term costs were too high, even though the federal government was going to pay 100% of the expansion costs at the beginning and always 90% sort of in the long term. And South Carolina would only ever have to put up 10%. The argument was that it was still too expensive. There was also talk about, and continues to be talked today about, we already spend a ton of money on Medicaid. And what outcomes are we getting for that money? Would there be a better way to improve the health outcomes of the uninsured rather than give them Medicaid? Where does South Carolina fall nationally? You know, how many other states also made that decision and have stuck with it over the last 10 years? At the beginning, half or a little more than half of all states said, we're going to go forward with this. It's too good of a deal to say no to. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this, the federal government was going to pay 100% of expansion costs. And then they were going to back off of that until they reached that 90% mark. Over the years, more states have signed on 
South Carolina right now is one of 12 states that has not, that still has not expanded Medicaid. Most of those states are in the Southeast or in the South. Do we know if South Carolina were to, say, change that decision today and expand Medicaid, do we know how much that would cost the state approximately? I have heard estimates between, I think, 220 and $250 million. That's about equal to that 10% match that the state would have to contribute. Just extrapolating, you know, 90% um, that the federal government would be paying for is over $2 billion. You wrote that this decision easily ranks as one of the most significant healthcare policy choices state leaders have made this century. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, it impacts a large group of people every single year. And, you know, over the past 10 years, probably close to $20 billion that South Carolina has not received from the federal government because of this decision. And obviously, that's a lot of money. Economics aside, it's it's cost some people their lives. You know, there was a study that I referenced in the article that was conducted, and this is an aggregate across all of the non-expansion states, but these researchers determined thousands of people have died because of these states' refusal to expand Medicaid. You spoke a little about that study about the health outcomes of people who fall into this gap. I guess first, how many people fall into this gap in South Carolina at this time, right? I'm sure it fluctuates, but what is it right now? The Kaiser Family Foundation estimates there are about 200,000 people in this state who have no health insurance. A good chunk of those people probably qualify for Medicaid right now and don't know it. Another good chunk of those people probably qualify for pretty generous financial help on the private insurance marketplace and they don't know it. Left over, there's still about 105,000 people, they estimate, who neither qualify for Medicaid nor the financial subsidies and fall into this gap. So it's about 105,000 people. And what do we know about that group? Why would someone fall in that gap in terms of their income level or other factors? What can put someone in that gap? There are a lot of different reasons. One thing that I did learn reporting this article is that a lot of these people are already working. They may have low income hourly jobs. Some of them might be caretakers. I mean, this is actually a pretty common thing. You know, if you're taking care of an adult child or your own parents at home and and you're a full-time caregiver and have no income, you might fall into the coverage gap. There was a man I interviewed a few years ago. His name was Jim Connor. I talked about him briefly in this article, but I wrote a series of articles on him a few years ago and he lived in Somerville and he delivered pizzas. That was his job. And he didn't earn that much money. I mean, You know, he started losing weight and he couldn't figure out why. And he went to a low income clinic and I think they determined he needed to see a a gastroenterologist and he tried applying for Medicaid. He was denied. He was eventually diagnosed with esophageal cancer and he died. He didn't have money to go see a doctor when the symptoms first arose. But I think, you know, that's a good example. You know, an adult without young children in the home who has an hourly job and still falls before below the federal poverty line. You know, there's a lot of people like that. Was there anything in particular that stuck out to you kind of revisiting this topic now, 10 years after South Carolina was faced with that decision? I guess what struck me is how nothing's really changed. 
but that nobody is really talking about it as much anymore. I mean, there were a lot of people talking about this 10 years ago, and that's just not really the case anymore. It's kind of just this under the radar issue that's still affecting a ton of people in South Carolina. We'll be right back with more after this quick message. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barry Hawes, a reporter from The Post and Courier. Working as a local reporter, I found that we can cover national stories in a way that reporters who come in from New York or D.C. or Atlanta simply cannot. We've lived in the community. We have contacts in the community. We've raised children here. We own houses here. We can bring perspectives that somebody coming in from the outside simply cannot. When stories come up, we know who to contact to find out what's going on. We understand the impact that it has on people who live here because we live here as well. That's why the local perspective that we provide is so important. Learn more at postandcourier.com slash subscribe. My name is Christian Sora and I'm the executive vice president at the South Carolina Hospital Association. When the ACA was first passed, at the time I was in Pennsylvania state government. So I was the secretary of administration in Pennsylvania until uh, 2011. And in 2011, moved here, came into South Carolina's government and was deputy chief of staff for Governor Haley for budget and policy initiatives. And then in 2014, went out to run the Department of Health and Human Services and, and was there until 2017. Right. So at that time that the... Supreme Court made its ruling on the ACA. Can you talk a little bit about what the discussion was like in Colombia? What was the discussion around this decision that was facing every state on if they would expand Medicaid or not? So for the first couple of years, states didn't think there was an option. <laughs> we all read the federal law the same way, I think. And we had a couple of year runway from when Congress passed the Affordable Care Act until states had to start paying for some share of the costs of the Medicaid expansion that went with it. At the time that the Supreme Court ruled on that NFIB versus Sebelius case, we were not yet at the point where states were out of pocket on Medicaid expansion, although we were starting to think through where are we going to find the money to cover the state share of it. So at that stage, states were in the planning process, knowing they had to find a source of funding to pay for what would grow to be a 10% share of the cost over time. But we weren't there yet. And so as soon as the Supreme Court came in and said, surprise, Medicaid expansion is optional, immediately, you know, each state made its own decision about what its priorities were going to be. And it, it became pretty clear, given the political climate in South Carolina, that Medicaid expansion was not going forward for the foreseeable future. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Why was that not going to be part of South Carolina's foreseeable future Due to that political climate, what was it about the ACA or Medicaid expansion that politically clearly wasn't going to happen? I think the biggest political obstacle was the individual mandate, was the idea that there was a provision of this law that would require that everybody carry health insurance. And, and I know that when you think about the, the rise of the Tea Party movement, or you think about in, in the sort of political commentary or discussions from elected officials, that was always the first thing that came up was opposition to the idea that the government would tell you to buy insurance. Everything else was a much more sort of secondary concern. I would say the second biggest discussion, at least among elected officials in Colombia, was where are we going to find the 10%? You know, so there was 
a sort of a moral or philosophical disagreement with the idea of an individual mandate. And then there was a financial concern of how will the state find the 200 to $250 million a year you might need to pay for that 10% of the cost of Medicaid expansion. Talking now 10 years out from that decision, things have changed on the individual mandate side, right? They have. I mean, so, so Congress uh, effectively eliminated the individual mandate. The individual mandate still exists, but the, the penalty is $0. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a tree falling in the forest. Uh, but the in- individual mandate is effectively gone, which leaves us really with, I think, the, the question of the state's financial contribution as being the largest residual obstacle to Medicaid expansion. Is it a question that's as simple as spending the money on that 10% or not? Or is there a cost that comes with choosing to not expand Medicaid in the state? Well, this is one of those places where I, I keep finding myself answering every question with, well, it's complicated. I, I think there, there is a very messy calculus of the true cost of Medicaid expansion, and more importantly, the cost of not doing Medicaid expansion. I think one of the traps that we tend to fall into is we don't do a good job of comparing the alternatives as they really are. Instead, we just think about Medicaid expansion or not, as if it costs zero dollars to stay where we are. So we haven't done a great job, I think, as a, as a state of doing a true accounting of, of, of these two competing options that are before us as to what the cost and benefit are and for whom, right? So when we talk about the cost of Medicaid expansion, do we mean the cost to the state government itself? Do we mean the cost to people who have other forms of insurance and, and today are subsidizing uncompensated care for patients who don't have insurance? There's a cost to that too. And it's one that we tend not to quantify or talk about in this discussion. You know, what's the human cost of not doing Medicaid expansion? Well, we're seeing more and more studies come out and tell us what the, the health implications are for people of not doing Medicaid expansion. So, you know, I think if we're going to start being more honest with ourselves about the choice that we've made as a state, we need to look at all of those things as part of the math and not just make this, this is not a, a purely financial decision that you make based on some spreadsheet. It's a moral decision as well. Speaking from your perspective with your current organization, why do South Carolina's hospitals support expanding Medicaid in the state? I think the number one baseline reason is because you know hospitals believe that everyone should have access to uh, safe and effective high quality care and that that care should be affordable. I think another reason is that since the 80s, we've had a federal law that says that hospitals uh, that have emergency rooms have to provide stabilizing care to people who show up. That's something hospitals you know, haven't opposed, we've been fine with, but, but the problem is that you're practicing battlefield medicine. You know, by the time somebody shows up in an emergency room, it's because their condition has been allowed to degrade to a condition where now it's an emergency. And it is, it is cheaper and it's more effective and it's a more humane thing to get in front of those conditions and manage them effectively early. I, I think the viewpoint from hospitals is going to be that Patients are better off and society's better off. And anybody who's involved in the financing of these things is also better off when you provide uh, affordable coverage to everyone. Medicaid expansion, we don't really hear a lot of people talking about it now. Why do you think that is? And do you think there is some, some space for that discussion in, in South Carolina right now? 
Well, I think the politics in Colombia anyway haven't moved that much over the course of the past few years. You know, the effective elimination of the individual mandate, I think, was an important step and does take away what is the biggest philosophical obstacle to Medicaid expansion in South Carolina. So, so I think that that has improved the climate to some degree. The financial argument is one that I that we still consistently hear from members of the legislature or hear from the executive branch as well. Now, I think ultimately that that, that problem can be solved by people who uh, you know are ready to sit down and, and work in good faith on, on ways to find the funding. Because even though we tend to talk about it as being the quote unquote state share, you know, that the state has to contribute that 10%, it, it really isn't necessarily an obligation of the state. It just means the federal government's not going to pay for it. In some states, you found there may be a, a local government contribution some, in some states, they've had the provider community contribute financially to help find that money. When we think about all of the ways that we spend money right now unproductively on providing health care, you know, again, to use that you know, battlefield medicine kind of term, it is very expensive to treat people after the fact, after you've let their condition deteriorate. If we can get to a model where we have a better, more comprehensive uh, coverage path, then we can help to take some cost out of the system and the people who save that money can also be part of the solution in finding that 10% share. So there's there's ways, I think, to, to cover the state share of Medicaid expansion without asking state taxpayers to reach into their pockets any further. Is there anything that you think maybe the general public in, in South Carolina may misunderstand about Medicaid expansion? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think the general public actually has a reasonably good handle on it because whenever you do polls on Medicaid expansion, the general public says, that seems like a pretty good idea to us. <laughs> That's across the aisle. So, so, you know, even when they break these things down, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation does constant polling on healthcare issues and they find time and time again, Medicaid expansion is supported by a majority of people, including a majority of Republicans. So I, I think the public gets that. I think that the challenge probably among the political environment is that there are probably more people in politics who understand this and, and are personally supportive of Medicaid expansion than the, the fraction of, of people in politics who feel comfortable expressing that position publicly. If we had a secret ballot on Medicaid expansion in Colombia, I think we would probably get different results than what you would see if you just looked at everybody's Twitter feed and try to come up with their position on Medicaid expansion based on that. And to some degree, there, there's this question of when will people feel politically like it's safe to be for it? And, and that is a long-term process. And, you know, when you go back to the creation of Medicaid originally in 1965, it was 17 years before the last state agreed to participate in the Medicaid program. It's not like it's necessarily all that new for states to take their time occasionally making decisions about what kinds of coverage changes they're ready to make. You know, the, the states that have changed their position on, on Medicaid over the course of the past few years, in general, have done so because the voters forced it. The last few states that moved into expansion mode did it not because people, you know, in the state house decided to make that decision. It's because those were states where they have voter-initiated, you know, referenda processes and in those states, enough people signed petitions and then showed up at the ballot box and said, it's time to do this, that they they basically forced the state government's hand. I, I think the, the electorate is ready. It's just a question of, of getting the political class to a place where they feel comfortable. And as I said, I mean, the, the largest 
substantive obstacle to Medicaid expansion that remains is the financial question. Is that question of how do we pay for the 10% share? You know, at some point, I think people will be ready to sit down and say, okay, how do we solve this problem? And when people get to that mode, I think we'll be able to get to a, a better coverage model than we have today. All right, that's all for today. For more information about what we discussed, I've linked Lauren's latest story in today's show notes. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for this podcast, email us at understandsc at postingcareer.com or DM us on Twitter at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. Let us know what you think of the show. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com. We'll be back next week with a different news story from our state. Thanks for listening.